Welcome to Table Talk. Over the next few weeks we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the church. And tonight Table Talk is coming to you live from Ballymacashan Congregational Church in County Down, Northern Ireland. At the kitchen table with me are a group of Christian friends. We're going to be learning about the church together. We're starting off with the invisible church, the idea of the church that God alone sees. And we're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 7. We're taking this series of lessons from the Reformed Confessions. Today we're looking at the Savoy Declaration, which says the Catholic or Universal Church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and he is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So our topic for Table Talk tonight is the church that God alone sees. Welcome to Table Talk. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4 And I heard the number of them which were sealed and there were sealed an hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 9 After this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honour, and power, and might, be unto our God for ever and ever. We're going to try over the next few weeks to study the Church, and we're going to use the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster Confession, and the Savoy Declaration as our guide. So we're going to start with a Bible search. And I've put two passages of scripture in your wee study guide there. And what I'd like you to do is to read both of them. Um, Open your Bible, first of all, at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. And then Colossians 1 and verse 18. And in both these passages, the church is spoken of. But there is a subtle difference in the way that the church is spoken of. A description of the church. And what I'd like us to see tonight is that difference. In both those passages, the word church is mentioned. So, Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Has anybody got that one? Could anybody read it out? Readings. So, Acts chapter 13 and Colossians chapter 1. And in both of them, you'll have noticed the word church is mentioned. 
But in Acts chapter, in the Acts passage, the church is a local thing, isn't it? Look at the church. It's the church at Antioch. And in it, there are prophets and teachers. In fact, we even have some of their names. Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manaean. You know, these are the people who are the leaders and the teachers in the local church. But when it comes to Colossians, it's a whole different picture of the church. It talks about Christ being the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. In other words, it's the church that uh, is under Christ. It's more than just a local assembly. It's every true believer under Christ as the head of the church from all over the world. Everyone who has been granted new life in Christ by grace through faith alone. It's the entire people of God. So the first thing we have to learn about the church is that there are two aspects to it. There's the church that we see, the local church like here, and there's the church that God sees which is everyone who belongs to him in every age, in every country, in every language, all of those who've been given a new life in Christ and who are his people are the church. That's why we read that passage from Revelation. Because when John looked at the church in heaven, in verse 9, Revelation chapter 7, and verse 9, what did he see? He saw a great multitude. It was so good, so great, and so amazing that he couldn't even count the numbers of them. But when God looked at them, look at verse 4. I heard the number of them which were sealed. There were 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And it goes on then to list all the tribes and how many there was from each. Now the number the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. 144,000 symbolic of the completeness of God's people. So look at these two different ways of looking at the church. When we look at the at the church in heaven, we will see from our perspective a great multitude that nobody can number. We couldn't count the people that's going to be in heaven. But when God looks at them, what does he see? He sees the completeness of his people from every age. He knows every one of them. He has every one of them counted. And we think of the church that God sees as being what we call the invisible church. So tonight for a few minutes, we're going to learn about that. That body of people who are God's people, God's elect, redeemed by Christ at the cross, dying there for sinners, for you and me. And we want to learn three very simple facts about the true church of Christ. And they're on your wee study guide this evening. So Reformed Christians state their belief in the invisible church like this. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect, that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that dwelleth all in all. So that's written on your 
study guide for you. And that's from the Savoy Declaration, but it's also from the Westminster Confession. They're both identical. So this is the belief of both Congregationalists and Presbyterians. Now, these three things that we want to learn. First of all, the true church is universal. So when they were writing the Westminster Confession or the Savoy Declaration, they agreed that the Catholic or universal church is invisible. Now, what does it mean to say the church is universal? Sometimes when we think about universalism, we think of those liberal Christians who think that Christ's death has saved everyone in the whole world. I've actually met people who verged on that belief. A few years ago, there was a man in church in Belfast who proudly told me that his favourite Christian author was a man called Bishop Leslie Newbiggin. Now, Bishop Leslie Newbiggin began his life as a Scottish Presbyterian minister. Then he went out to India as a missionary and he came back to London and he became a member of what's called the United Reformed Church, the church of made up of old liberal congregationalists and Presbyterians. I thought, well, if that's what you're reading, you're not reading some very good stuff there because Newbiggin was a universalist. Newbiggin believed that Christ's death on the cross was for the whole world, therefore the whole world must be saved. Wouldn't matter whether you're an atheist or a Muslim or a Hindu or no matter what you are, you could be a cannibal. The whole world is saved because Christ died. I thought to myself, well, why would anybody want to be a missionary in India if they believe that Christ has already saved everyone? And Newbiggin explained that by saying that, well, Christ's death has saved everybody, but we have to tell them that they're saved. And my friend in this church in Belfast had been reading Leslie Newbiggin. And he said to me, you know, whenever Christ gave us his great commission, he told us to go into all the world and we're to baptise people. So we'll have to baptise everybody, whether they're saved or not. And I said, well, hold on a minute. That's not Christianity. Oh, yes, it is. If Christ has died for everybody and everybody's saved, all we have to do is baptise them. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the church being a universal church. It's not what the Puritan John Owen was thinking about when he contributed so heavily to the two Reformed confessions. The true church, the church that God alone sees, is made up of every single Christian believer. So the confession says it is the whole number of the elect. And there's where the hint lies. And we see this sometimes also in the Heidelberg Catechism, where we learn that Christ's death is sufficient for every single person in the whole world, but it's only efficient for those who repent and have faith in him. So while there's the capacity for everyone to be saved, only those whom God has convicted of sin and brought from darkness into light and who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus are in that number on that final day. 
One other thing about this universal business. The crates and confessions talk about the Catholic Church. It's always with a small c. Whenever we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. You know, Matt Totten used to be raging about that. I remember having a conversation with him out there one day. Matt Totten had been to an orange service in Balnehinch in the Church of Ireland. And I said, what was it like, Matt? Oh, I said it was all right. The preacher was good. But he says, I didn't like a service one bit. I says, why not? Oh, I said, they said that Apostles' Creed thing. And they said, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I refuse to say it. I'm not saying I believe in any Catholic Church. <laughs> I says, Matt, don't confuse that with no. the Roman Catholic Church. Because that's something entirely different. The word just means universal. Sorry, did he come round? No, he didn't. He never, ever said it. But the word just means universal. In fact, if you think about it, Roman Catholic's really an oxymoron, isn't it? It's a contradiction in terms. How can you be a Roman Catholic? Because if Catholic means universal, how can you be a Roman universal? You know, the universal church is not the, univ- it's not the Roman church. It's not the Congregational Church. It's not the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church. The the Universal Church, the the Catholic Church, with a small c, is all of God's people from every age. So the true church is universal. It's from every age. It's every single sinner who has ever been saved is a member of Christ's church. The second thing we notice, again, this is on your wee study guide. The true church is already united. It consists of the whole number of the elect. Sometimes we sing a song, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And there's a verse that says, We are not divided, all one body we. One in hope and doctrine, one in charity. And immediately when people who are not Christians hear that, they wonder. They say, how could you say the church is not divided? Well, especially within Protestantism, because we have churches that are vastly different. Yesterday on Facebook, I saw an an announcement made about this brilliant new church that's being opened in East Belfast. And I thought to myself, they're opening that church right beside a really evangelical Baptist church. Why? There's another hymn, the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. And it says, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Nobody knows this better than we do. Congregationalism, Presbyterianism, split after split after split, not just in denominations but in local churches as well. In earlier years, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a huge push towards visible unity in the church, unity within Protestantism. And of course, that goes on then 
that they wanted not only unity within Protestantism, but unity with Rome. And ecumenism was the watchword of the day. And lots of churches compromised on their beliefs to attain favour with each other and with Rome. And of course, Rome never budges an inch on doctrine, not an inch. But the progressive Christianity of that day was all about church unity. You had the World Council of Churches, and here in Northern Ireland, you had the Corrymeela community up in the North Coast. Um, you had the Irish Council of Churches. You had an organisation called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. You had the Catholic Charismatic Movement. You had the March for Jesus. All those ecumenical initiatives were a mark of that age. And of course, nowadays, progressive Christianity has gone even further into error and into compromise. Churches now supporting abortion, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, churches jumping on every bandwagon that just happens to pass them by in a godless world. So how can we say that the church is united? We may not be united visibly, but the true Christians who are saved by God's grace are united in two ways. First of all, they are gathered into one. Now look back what the uh, Savoy Declaration says here. The true church is the Catholic or universal church which is invisible. It consists of the whole number of the elect. Now here's the wee phrase. That have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. So the true church is already one. We're united. And according to the Reformed Confessions, we're united because of our election. God has gathered his people. It is him that did it. And we have a common bond. We have all tasted God's grace, his undeserved love for sinners. Now look at the next wee phrase. It says, the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. Millions of Christians throughout the world look to Jesus. Millions of Christians across the world walk in his steps. Millions of Christians worship Jesus on the Lord's Day morning. Millions and millions of Christians seek to obey him. He is their Lord. And that's what singles them out as believers. They have one Father in heaven and one Saviour. All around us and all over the world, other believers are worshipping God. And in the heavenly realms, the angels are worshipping God. And the redeemed saints are worshipping God. And we're a part of that huge number of people that worship the Lord together. Now you might ask, well, if the church is united in God's sight, why is that unity not replicated here on earth in the church that we see? Why is the church here so divided when in God's eyes, all of his people are one people? Well, we're going to look at that in the next lesson. But for now, one of the side issues that we have to note is that we need to be careful who we worship with. Because not every church that calls itself Christian is actually 
Christian. Not every church that says they worship Jesus is actually a Christian church. Let me give you a very obvious example. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you were driving down the Hollywood Road in Belfast and you saw this big notice board, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you would say that's a Christian church if you didn't know any better. Does anybody know what it is? It's the Mormons. They don't like you calling them Mormons these days. They like you to call them the Church of Jesus Christ. But they don't worship the same Jesus as in the Bible. The Jesus of the Mormons is a false Jesus. He's a created Jesus. So we have to be very careful. Just because a church says it's a Christian church doesn't mean that we can worship with them. That's why God gives us teachers and pastors and shepherds to protect us from ravening wolves. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 down to 15 is well worth reading and it's in your study guide so that you can read it through the week. I'll just pick a few wee verses out of it here for you. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. God has given us pastors and teachers, elders, church leaders, to bring us closer to Christ so that we will be united in him. The last thing we want to learn then is that the true church can be described. What we see in the Bible are descriptions of the church. We call them motifs, little analogies of the church, metaphors that are used for the church in the New Testament. Let's go back to our Reformed Confession. So the Savoy Declaration or the Westminster Confession talks about this at the end of its statement. It says that Christ is the head and the church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So what do you think the church's two descriptions are in the Bible? The church is like a bride and the church is like a body. Now that doesn't mean that we're literally the body of Christ, sure it doesn't. But it means that we're like a body and we're like a bride. Let's look at the bride first. Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to turn to that please with me in your Bible. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself 
a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So there you are, Paul describing in terms of marriage the relationship between Christ and the church. Now I often use this as a gospel message at weddings, especially weddings where the the people that are there are not churchgoers or not Christians. And I'll say to them that you have to love your wife, to say that to the groom, you have to love your wife. And when you're loving your wife, you have to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church so much that he gave himself for the church. That's the way you have to love your wife. You have to be unselfish. And you have to love her even when she's unlovable. Even when she's really irritating first thing in the morning. You have to love her. And you have to keep on loving her right until the day when the Lord comes and calls one of you home. Because it's till death us do part. This description of the church as being like Christ's bride comes to its fullness in the book of Revelation. Because there we find something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think we looked at this when we were doing eschatology, didn't we? That one day there will be this great reunion and it'll be like Christ and his bride coming together finally in heaven. And there'll be a great celebration. Look at Revelation chapter 19, please, in your Bible. So Revelation chapter 19. And here's a wee passage to mark in your Bible. Something to look forward to. This is the Holy Spirit saying to John, write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed. It'll be a happy day when Christ and his bride are united. So you've got the bride of Christ, the church described as being like a bride, and then you've got the church being described as the body. So he is the head of the body, the church who is who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So he is the head of the body, the church. Now that's really good to be described as a body because in a body we all have different functions within the church. And of course Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he talks about the body is one and yet is all different members. So he says by one spirit we are all baptized into one body whether Jew or Gentiles, bond or free, be made to drink into one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. And then he uses this illustration. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, behold, I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? 
But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. So we've all got different functions. Because we're like a body, not everybody can be an eye. We all have different parts to play. We all have different roles. Not everybody can be a Sunday school teacher, but some can. Not all can be a minister, but some can. Not all can be a missionary, but some can. Not everybody can be a great person of prayer, but some can. You know, so everybody in the body has a role to play. And every role is important. So it's very practical, isn't it? So we've got the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. Finishing up, we can't know who's in the invisible church. Of course we can't. Only God knows who is his. The church that we see on a Sunday morning is not necessarily the same as the church that God sees. The church that God sees is the people that he has chosen and redeemed and he knows every single one of them. And Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7, the prophet writes, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. <laughs>